Good morning, everyone. As we turn our attention to God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with joy-filled reverence and sober humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin prepares our hearts and minds to do that. Let's read it together. All people are like grass. All their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. This morning's scripture reading is taken from Revelations chapter 12, verses 3 through 4a. Again, the text is Revelation 12, verses 3 through 4a. Hear now the word of the Lord from the book of Revelation. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Well, good morning. It's good to be with all of you again. I want to... Uh... So we, as we jump into it's really the, the third or the four Advent uh, series this morning, we're going to be looking at, um, at Revelation 12, as, as Lucy just read for us. And what we've what we've been looking at is something different this uh, different this fall. We've been lo- or this this uh, Advent season. Sorry, let me just grab this here. I need to record myself here. There we go. Uh, this, this Advent season, we're looking at the, the question, what exactly did the Magi see in the night sky? And I hope it's been something perhaps new and, and uh, um, adventurous, really. In fact, it's, it's something that I think as a kid we can, we can particularly appreciate. And I think, I think it speaks to the sense of wonder, the sense of, uh, the sense of adventure that we have as children. In fact, kids, I don't know how many of you like superheroes. Do any of you have a favorite? Say, raise your hand if you have a favorite superhero. Anybody have a favorite superhero? No, none of you kids have favorite superheroes. Oh, oh okay. Noah, what's your, who's your favorite superhero? Spider-Man. I'm so Spider-Man. That's a really good. Is there a particular reason you like Spider-Man? He's just really cool. Okay, I like. Very good. And Winston, what about you? What's who's your favorite? Captain America. Why, why Captain America? Yeah, so even though he doesn't have actual superpowers, he still has a lot of skills, right? What's his famous line? I could do this all day, right? It's this sense of American endurance of, of uh, yeah, back here. Uh, DJ, what, what was your favorite superhero? Captain America, Thor, there were several others there. There were a number of them. That's, that's really cool. Actually, and Elena, did you have one as well? Scarlet Witch. Oh, I know who that is. That's just, just from, Marvel, from Marvel, right? She has like all these like she can make like the, the shield and stuff around her. That she's uh, she's not to be messed with. That's for sure. I'm telling you. I know. I've seen. I've seen. I've often thought she could go up against almost any of them. But um, yeah, that's a, that's a really good one. Anyone else favorite favorites? Eli, you have a favorite superhero? No. It's hard to choose. I understand. I get it. Well, my my favorite superhero. 
is, uh, well, before I tell you that, I, often we, we like certain superheroes because there's something particular to them that, that we can identify with in some way. For example, I had a friend of mine who's, who also, his favorite superhero was Spider-Man. And there was a reason for that. In fact, he was a friend of mine who knew him in the military. And it was a very sad reason, actually, because both of his, when he was a child, both of his parents died. And they died in an accident, and, and when he was a kid, he was raised by his aunt, which, of course, is just like Spider-Man. Now, uh, is Spider-Man real? Now, no, don't listen. Cover your ears. No, no, no. Uh, no, but Spider-Man, we all know Spider-Man's not real, but we know that there's truth. There are truths in the stories of these myths. You know, again, my favorite superhero is Batman. And you can perhaps, kids, can you guess why I, Pastor Bruce, like Batman? I see some hands raising. Yeah, right, his name is Bruce Wayne, but it's not only that. It's actually very similar to what Winston said about Captain America. I like Batman because he has no special superpowers. He has to rely on his resourcefulness and his strength and uh, his, just his standing in society and his wealth. To, to, to do what is really, you know, to do the right thing, to do the just thing. In fact, recently I was showing my older kids a movie about Batman. It's called The Dark Knight. It's one of my favorite movies. And it's, and for kids, unfortunately, it's for older kids. So maybe, you know, at some point you ask your parents when you can watch it. But it's a really, really good story. And in fact, I'm going to tell the story just very briefly to you now. So the city that Batman lives in is called Gotham. And it's not safe anymore. In fact, there are bad guys everywhere. And even some of the police, listen to this kids, even some of the police are secretly working for the bad guys. Isn't that terrible? Now, of course, Batman is fighting all of them, or at least he's trying, but he needs some good cops on his side. Does that make sense? Especially, he needs what's called a district attorney. A district attorney, an attorney is someone who puts the bad guys behind bars, takes them into court, shows that they're guilty, and puts them in prison. But the thing that he needs is an attorney who is brave enough, who has the courage to put the bad guys in prison. Well, enter Harvey Dent. Harvey Dent is this attorney who isn't scared of anyone. And this is exactly what Gotham and what Batman needs. Gotham begins to hope again that maybe the bad guys won't always have the last say, that maybe chaos won't reign uh, throughout the city. But guess what happens, kids? Listen to this. So we, we all know that Batman has a particular bad guy, a particular a great enemy. His name is the Joker, right? Well, the Joker, listen to this, the Joker starts telling this, this, this great, courageous, brave attorney, Harvey Dent, starts telling him lies. And you know what happens? The attorney begins to believe them. And you know what happens? Harvey Dent, this great white knight who has helped this great police officer, if you will, he goes from being a good guy to becoming a bad guy. And it's so sad to see. In fact, he's so bad that he ends up killing five different people. Two of them were good cops. But no one knows it yet except for three people. Do you know who the three people are? Batman knows it. A good cop named Gordon, Commissioner Gordon knows it. And Gordon's son. And they're, they're wondering, what are we going to do? And Gordon, the police officer, says, oh no, he says, when people find out that their great, their great hero... That Harvey Dent, the attorney, who is so strong and courageous and brave, 
when they find out that he has become a bad guy, they're going to lose hope. And so guess what happens next? Batman says, I know what we'll do. We'll tell everyone that I killed them, not Harvey Dent. I, he says, I will take the blame instead. In fact, in the movie, he says, I killed those people. That's what I can be. And then Commissioner Gordon objects. He says, he says you can't. You're not. That's not who you are. And Batman says this, I'm whatever Gotham needs me to be. And he looks at the police officer, Gordon, Commissioner Gordon, he says, you will hunt me, you will condemn me, because it's what needs to happen. And seriously injured, Batman limps off as Gordon takes his radio and calls the Gotham police to pursue Batman. And just as Gordon's son is there, Gordon's son was kidnapped and Batman rescued him, And his son comes to his dad and says, why is he running, dad? And his dad says, because we have to chase him. And the boy looks at his father confused and says, why, dad? He didn't do anything wrong. Now, what's amazing is this end of the story. I was watching it with my older kids, and one of them said something very important. Listen to this, kids. One of them said something very important. She said, wow, it seems like all the really great made-up stories point back to the one true story. Can you say that again? She said, it seems like all the really great made-up stories end up pointing back to the one true story. The one gospel story. And that's, of course, I mean, it's, it's one of the most beautiful endings you could have, right? A hero saying, I will take the blame. I will be misunderstood. I, my reputation will go in the can. I, I will be the one who is considered the bad guy. And that's exactly the gospel story. The gospel story is one who comes as the good guy, the one who actually isn't part of the problem, and what? Assumes the role of being the one who is the problem, capital P. The good guy becomes the bad guy. Nails, spear, we just sang this. Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. So the Advent season, again, we're asking this question, what exactly did the Magi see in the night sky? And what, what, and what, what was it that made, think about it, what was it that made these astrologers slash advisors slash, I mean, these, these men would have been sort of the equivalent of a combination of therapist, astronomer, and political consultant. They were important persons, and they, they used their knowledge of the night side to give counsel, often to, to very important people, often to rulers and persons of influence. And they came from the east, traveling 500 miles to appear in Jerusalem and to ask a very dangerous question to a king, to King Herod, no less. Where is the one born king of the Jews? And as we've seen in the past weeks, while we don't know, we don't know the answer for sure, it seems... A very compelling answer, at least, is that that what they saw in the night sky was, among other things, a comet, an amazing comet. And we've argued that in Revelation 12 that John is actually describing the constellations around the time of Jesus' birth. And what's so important is that in these constellations, the ancient people from east to west saw stories. They saw myths. 
And these myths, listen to this, God uses these myths to communicate to these magi a story that is actually true. Just as said, the, the movie that I just described, The Dark Knight, in the end it describes the story, the true story of Jesus Christ, of his sacrifice, of his overcoming death, overcoming sin through his own death. So also in the same way in the night sky, as we're going to see here, as we've seen the last few weeks, there's been this story happening, this emerging story first in verse 1 we saw of a woman. Of course, that's the constellation Virgo. She is clothed with the sun. Virgo was appearing to the Magi in the pre-dawn morning, being lit up by the, 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 the rays of the sun. The moon was at her feet. In fact, the moon is rarely at this location under Virgo, so much so that astronomers think that we can actually date the event is somewhere in the mid-September of 6 BC, probably a year or two before Jesus was born. So something, something's interesting. We see Virgo, we see her clothed with the sun, the moon, and her feet. There are 12 stars above her head. A Virgo wears a crown, or what's called a tiara, which also has, again, which has 12 stars on it, which, of course, would, would not have been lost on these, on these astrologers, these, these magi, that there were 12 tribes of the people of Israel. Where is the one born king of the Jews? And then in verse 2, she's with child. Something appeared in the night sky that would have given the Magi the idea that Virgo was expecting. And a great candidate for this appearance, this new, this new, this new spectacle in the, in the night sky would have been a comet. A comet that first rose very small in her tummy. Listen to this, kids. A comet very small, rising, and I'm going to show you some pictures in just a second, so hang with me. Rising in her tummy, with growing in size, like a baby does, and then beginning to, to move back down, descending down out of her tummy with a long tail, telling them that, just as verse 2 says, she was in great pain because she was about to give birth. Now listen to this. A comet was often considered, there were no, several ways of interpreting the meaning of a comet, but regularly a comet was a sign of a royalty, of a king or a queen. Kids, can you, why would it be that a comet would be the sign of a king or queen, a birth or perhaps their death? Think about that. Why would that be? And Winston, you want to guess? It looks like a scepter? Boy, this kid's been listening. Man, man, gee, who's your father? And that's, that's great. That's, that's a great, so it, it looks like a scepter. In fact, it refers back to Numbers 24 that speaks of a, a prophecy of a scepter in the sky. But think about this. The planets and the stars, they all follow a path, right? You know that. They follow a certain path. Listen to this. They all follow the rules. The moon is on a certain trajectory. The sun, stars, they all follow a certain path. When a comet shows up, it does whatever it wants. Now think about that. Does that make sense? That is a sign of a ruler. When a ruler comes, everyone else is following the rules. Everyone else is in their course doing their thing. But when someone new, a new king arises, someone who doesn't have to follow the rules, someone who's signaling, and not just that he doesn't have to follow the rules, but when these comets would interact with the constellations, the constellations would take on a new meaning, a more specific, important meaning, just as we've seen here. So now they're, they're the Magi are seeing Virgo. They see Virgo all the time. But now they're considering her in the light of this, 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 new, this, this, this new appearance in the sky. 
of a comet that's there and, and that, that signals the possibility of the arrival of a new king, a king of great importance, a king of the Jews. Now, I want to take a moment. I, if we got Ron here, if you could, just, I'm going to show you a few pictures. I don't know how well these will show up here. But, uh, but here, so kids, I want you to see this. This is a, what's this? So a comet, let me just give you a sort of a brief science lesson here. A comet is, consists first and foremost of what's called a nucleus, almost like a cell. So a nucleus here, and the nucleus, listen to this, it's, it's, it's rocky, it's got rock, it's got dirt. And listen to this, it's got ice around it because it's so cold in space. And this ice isn't necessarily water ice, it's like all these chemicals that are frozen. Okay, and that's what it looks like going through space. There's no tail, there's nothing, it's just that. In fact, around, usually around, right around the outside, it's got like its own atmosphere, it's like a dust cloud all around. And that dust cloud is called a coma. Okay, go ahead and go to the next picture. Now, but what happens though, as, a, as, a, as this, this nucleus and the, uh, the coma around it, as they get closer to the sun, at some particular distance, as, the sun, as they get closer to the sun, the sun, begins to warm this, this, this big dark, uh, this big uh, um, ball of, of dirt and rock, it begins to warm up the, the chemicals, the icy chemicals, so that the chemicals turn from ice, from a hard substance, to gas immediately. And it's when that gas comes off the nucleus and, and, and along with the, the dust in the trail that you begin to get a tail. And what's so really neat is that the tail always faces away from the sun. So you, some, you might think that, like, a, you know, if you were to take a, a ball and attach a string to it and you throw it and the string is always behind the, direct, the, the direction or the course of a ball, this is not, it doesn't work that way. When a comet is circling, is going around the sun, the tail is always facing the opposite direction. In fact, there are usually two tails. There's the main, the gaseous tail, and often there's a tail that also has, to, has the, the dirt or dust that's coming off it as well. So that's, that's um, I believe that is um, Neowise, the, the, a, a comet that appeared uh, this past summer. Go ahead and go to the next picture, Ron, if you will. Now listen, uh, I, I mentioned the nucleus, and I've mentioned the, the, the coma around it, and the, the tail as well, but listen, these tails can be incredibly long. If the nucleus itself can be, the average nucleus is somewhere between one to five miles in size, okay? But they can get up to something like, let me make sure I check my notes here. They can get up to these, these massive comets can be somewhere, have nu a nuclei that are 80 to 100 miles in diameter. Imagine that thing going through the space. I mean, it's just incredible to think the size of it. And, and, um, and so here, the tail um, can, can just, it, depending on the size and, the, and the, the, the amount of gases and the kinds of gases on the nucleus, the tail is, can be a length that is just simply mind-boggling. So, for example, one way of measuring distance in space is to use a single, a single measurement from the center of the Earth to the center of the sun. That's called an astronomical unit. So one astronomical unit is the distance from the Earth's center to the sun's center, okay? So the longest recorded tail that they've ever found of a comet, are you ready for this? Is almost four astronomical units. So that tail stretches one, two, three, four times to and from the sun. That's how massive 
these comets can be. In fact, this picture right here, I'm, it's a comet with a Japanese, I believe it's a Japanese name that I cannot begin to pronounce, but that's the one that has the, the longest tail that they, that they have recorded at least. Go ahead and go to the next picture, Ron. Here we see, the, this is, the, this is the, uh, the constellations on the northern hemisphere, look, looking south. And you can't really, we can see on the left side, um, there's like, it looks like a, a person is falling. You can see the legs that come out this way. And, and uh, that, that is Virgo. Go ahead and go to the next slide. It'll, it'll be a, a picture that's closer. You can see Virgo right there. That's just the connecting the stars, the very basic parts. You can add different parts to it. Go ahead and go to the next slide. There's a, now now that, 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 uh, that um, the constellation has been turned so that we can see it upright. And there's one artist's depiction of, of Virgo. She, here she's standing, and very typically she has wings. In fact, if you were to read on to Revelation, 14, or Revelation 12, I think it's verse 14, we would see that the woman is actually given wings to, to flee from, from the dragon. Uh, go, to the, go to the next picture. Here's another portrayal of her. She's sitting down in this one, and here she's got the tiara on her, and, and she, she's often carrying a, um, you know, a, a, a branch there that she, because she's a sign of, of fertility, of, of, um, of, of fruitfulness. And then uh, go to the next picture real quick here. In this next picture, we, this is actually from the floor of a, uh, a sixth century Jewish synagogue, and it is a zodiac wheel. And you can, see, um, you can see up on the, the left side, right on the, the, the 9 or 10 o'clock position, you can see a woman. And go to, go to the next slide, I'll be a close-up here. And there she is right there, that is Virgo. And you can see the looks like chicken scratches there uh, up on the upper left side. That's Hebrew, and it says batulah. And batulah is, um, is the, the Hebrew word for, for virgin. Okay, so we're seeing that, so across, the, across the, the spectrum of cultures here, we're saying the same, in fact, Virgo is probably one of the oldest among the constellations in the sense that it's the most recognized across cultures. And so here, what we see God doing, as I've said before, is God is communicating, he's taking this universal language of astrology, this universal language of the night sky, and he's taking myth and he's turning it into fact, into reality. Okay, so now, as we read earlier, go ahead and leave that up there just for just a second, Ron. As we read earlier, it's not just a woman who's about to give birth that John sees in the heavens, as Lucy read for us. And we see in verse 3, the plot thickens. And John says, then another sign, that is another constellation, appeared in the heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Now this is referring to the nearby constellation called Hydra. Ron, go and go to the next slide there. Now here's a, one artist's depiction of, of Hydra. You can see the actual stars that are connected by the blue, um, the, 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 the blue line there. And, and, and so, and, and again, through the, whether it's a Babylonian, whether it's Egyptian, um, uh, astrology, they are all seeing this constellation as a, some sort of dragon or reptile or serpent and often with multiple heads. And, and what's, what's, what's important to see in all of this is the way that these two constellations, Virgo and Hydra, were often seen to interact. 
Uh, Ron, you can go ahead and take that down now. This is perfect. Okay, the kids, I want you to hear this story, okay? So in, in, in Egypt, there was a story. It's called the Ancient Egyptian Combat Myth. And this myth was, by the time of Jesus' day, was over 3,000 years old. Okay, isn't that amazing? 3,000 years old. And what's so amazing about this Egyptian combat myth is it wasn't just known in Egypt. It was known throughout the world. And the story is told of a red monster, a serpent dragon. A serpent dragon by the name of Seth Typhon. And this serpent dragon is this, ready? This, this serpent is symbolic for chaos. Remember at the very beginning, the call to worship, I mentioned a, a, a dragon, or this Rahab, this sea figure called Rahab. And she's, and, and, and again, this is a different name in Egyptian, but it's the same idea. It's like this chaos monster representing the forces of darkness. And this chaos monster, this serpent dragon, kills a god by the name of Osiris. But not before Osiris is able to impregnate Isis who then gives birth very painfully to Horus. I see it's being pictured as a woman. So again, we have, a, we have a dragon, we have a woman, and we have a woman who's now expecting, and she gives birth to a, a, a king or a royal figure named Horus. And Horus is, I mean, and, and, and as Horus is being born, of course, the, the chaos monster, the serpent dragon figure, is determined to kill the boy. And her son is destined, but her son, Horus, has been said to be one who is destined to reign and overcome the chaos and actually kill the, the, the chaos monster, or the dragon, the Seth Typhon. Now, that should all sound very familiar in light of Revelation 12. And it should sound familiar in light of what we saw in the night skies, or what the Magi saw in the night sky. But I want you to see here that what was originally Egyptian combat myth it's taken by God in the night sky and transformed, changing some details around into a story that is actually a story of God's Son. It is, if you will, the myth that became true. And what's so beautiful is we're going to see next week, we're going to see the, the way in which this, this figure, this, this, this the child, uh, is born and de de defies the, the dragon and becomes to rule the nations. And I want to leave you with this thought this morning. This notion that myth, a myth that is in fact true. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the life of C.S. Lewis. But C.S. Lewis was an ardent atheist. He was a professor of medieval literature to Oxford. And he would, as a professor of uh, medieval literature, he specialized in the idea of myth. He knew all these myths from the medieval times, from the Nordic times. In fact, he and his buddies, a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien, um, they would get together and they would talk. And, and Tolkien was, was a devout Catholic. And you think about, and, and Tolkien wanted Lewis to, to come to know Christ. And how do you, how do you convince a person with, with that intelligence? How do you convince with all, you know, with all these arguments? I don't know why it might be, but there was one thing that Tolkien said to, to Lewis again and again and again. Why are these myths so beautiful to you? What is it about the truth in these myths, the beauty in these myths, the goodness in these myths? What, what, what's there? What is it you're searching for? And could it be that there is a myth 
that is actually true? Could it be that all of these myths are in the end pointing to one great myth that is true? The idea for Tolkien was that whereas the pagan myths were manifestations of God expressing himself through the minds of poets, using various images to reveal fragments, various different rays of eternal truth. The true myth of Christ was a manifestation of God expressing himself through himself, not through some myth, but through himself and with himself and in himself, the very person of God in the incarnation, revealing that God, listen to this, that God himself is the ultimate storyteller, that he is the ultimate poet who has created a new reality, a true poem, a true myth in his own image. The story of Christmas as we sang, did you notice those Christmas carols we sang them? Especially the first one, um, God rest ye merry gentlemen, it speaks of what? Of how Christ has come to, to overcome the power of Satan. Satan is one who very much like the Joker, is one who's bent on chaos, who just wants to see the world burn. And if 2020 communicates anything to us, is that we live in a world that at any moment can become insecure, that can become very chaotic. And so many of us today, I sent out an email, was it yesterday, just communicating how Americans today, their mental health is, 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 is just so low. And it's only as we stay in contact with the story of Advent, week by week by week, that we can know that there is one who rules over the chaos, who actually can take the chaos and use it for his purposes, for his glory. And that's exactly the story of Advent. We see a God who is using political powers, who's using corrupt priests, he uses every manageable uh, form of, of, of chaos to fulfill the purposes that he has for his son. Let me close with these words from C.S. Lewis. Lewis writes, Now the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happened. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what, uh, what an amazing thing as we enter into this Advent season, Lord, as we, as we behold a woman Father, a teenager. Father, a peasant. Father, one who was an ethnic minority, one who was a, a non-citizen. Father, one who was not from the, a major city. Father, a, a city center, an urban center, but one who was actually rural, from an area that was regarded as inconsequential, that was regarded as backward, that was regarded even as suspect, as problematic. Father, a woman who had no formal education and may not even have been literate. Father, a woman who had seen an angel promising that in her, in a mysterious, miraculous way, would come one who would rule over the nations so that she would become known as, as surely someone who had, become, had been unfaithful to her man, knowing, becoming the object a pariah, an object of such disdain and of such scorn, of such contempt, regarded as even worthy of death. As we see this woman, Father, we are amazed 
that your ways are not our ways, that you are a God who loves to use little people to do amazingly beautiful things. And Father, as we think of this woman, we think of her words, I am the Lord's servant. Father, I pray this morning that each and every one of us could say it. From the, from the eldest to the youngest here, would we say, would we look upon your purposes and how you are a God who is so, uh, so holy in his might, able to use chaos for your purposes, but also a God who is holy in his mercy, so willing, so eager to forgive, to fill us with your grace, to give again and again and again. Father, would we say, I am the Lord's servant. Father, thank you so much for the beauty of the night sky. Thank you for the ways that you, you use nature all the time to speak to us. Thank you for these magi who, are, who have come, traveled 500 plus miles to, to bow their knee before a one born in a simple stall. Oh, Father, Renew our faith this Advent season, we pray in the mighty and merciful name of Jesus. Amen.